So welcome everyone. Welcome to our monthly mastermind with Mr. George Ross. George is distinguished in so many respects, not the least of which he's done more deals in New York City than virtually anyone else alive today. He's worked for the man who now resides in the White House as his right-hand man and advisor, uh, both on the TV show The Apprentice as in real life. He's taught at NYU in the law school for over 20 years, and we're just super fortunate to have his wisdom and uh, the next hour of his time. So get your pen and pencil ready, and we'll jump right in. Welcome, George. Hi, yep. So, George, let's start with a topic that we've talked about many times before. It's uh, near and dear to your heart and mine, and that's the topic of philanthropy. There's many modes you can make a contribution. You could be a driver and set up your own foundation, do all the heavy lifting. You know, St. Jude's a good example of that. You could play a more passive role as an aggregator um, and raise funds for someone else who's a driver. And one of the biggest issues that I see plaguing a lot of charitable organizations is what I call good cause, bad foundation. And this is where maybe loose governance or lack of accountability can damage the reputation of a foundation to the detriment of that underlying good cause. And I know you've been active on the board of several charities. Can you talk a little bit about some of the governance principles that you use for the charities you're involved with? Well, that, that's a good question. When you talk charities, of course, they're, they, they fall into two categories when you have a foundation, the private foundation. There's one charity which where you have a private foundation, and uh, it, it's easy to set up, but the restriction is that whatever money you give, you can only give to a recognized charity. You can't give it to the general public. Then there's another charity which is much more restrictive where you can get money from the outside world and you can give it to anybody that needs it. You can, uh, uh, indigenous, indigenous people and, uh, people, any really good cause. Okay. That is much more restrictive and under much more scrutiny, uh, with the government because that way they want to make sure that the, that you're doing charitable work and you're getting rid of all the money that you make. That's a, that's a tougher one. But in the, in the, uh, uh, so it depends on the charity and what, what you're doing. The big par problem with, uh, with a lot of charities is to have the transparency to show where your money is going. A lot of charities, they collect a lot of money, but they also have big expenses. So the amount that's available for, uh, philanthropy is, is limited. Right. And, uh, that's, that's something you'd have to look to. Uh, a lot of people, there's a, there's a website called Charity Navigator, which will tell you how many people have, uh, how much the people make in the charity and how much money actually get this, the, of the, the taken in actually goes to participants or for charitable good. And they vary. For example, the, uh, leader, the, the, the head person of the American Red Cross, and I haven't seen the numbers recently, had a salary of like seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year. That's a, that's huge. Whereas the, the head, the one that runs the Salvation Army took 18,000 a year. Wow. Oh, so, I mean, you can see there's a tremendous difference and you can't say the Salvation Army doesn't do good or the American Red Cross does better. But meanwhile, a lot of the money which would be coming in from participants for uh, a donation doesn't get to, uh, be used for what the people had in mind. So the transparency is uh, is important, and uh, the it's 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 a a game. Not a, you know when I say it's a game, it's a question of how 
what your charity is, how you want to do it. So as far as I'm concerned, on my foundation, the personal foundation, we give money to any rec- to recognized charities. So we would give money to St. Jude's. We would give it. We don't raise uh, effectively. It's private charity. I don't go out and raise money from the general public like St. Jude's. Sure. St. Jude's. But for those of uh, of you who are listening, the the, the St. Jude's has a uh, budget of expenses of a million and a half dollars a day. A day. And that all goes directly to pension programs, correct? So that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And they don't charge any, anyone that, that takes the service of St. Jude's doesn't pay anything for all the things, for, for any of the uh, services which they render to the, to the people that, have, that there is the sick pediatric cancer. So they have, have to have a monstrous fundraising umbrella in order to raise that kind of money. So they have a lot of people who do the fundraising and they have a lot of corporations which do it. It's a, it's a charity which is recognized. I mean, people, when it comes to kids with cancer, it's, it's something that's near and dear to anyone's heart. You can't, how can you be against it? Absolutely. But that's tough. That's well, a lot. You speak- want to set it up, you want to set up an organization which does that and the whole thing. That's, uh, that's a, a monster, monster job. Uh, you know, you, you brought up St. Jude's. Um, I was saddened to see that uh, the Eric Trump Foundation got shut down after Donald won the election. Uh, you know, Eric has done some great work. I've been involved in a number of his events in support of St. Jude. And, and that, talk about a low overhead organization. I think they had one staff member and everything else, like 99.3%, went directly through to St. Jude. And, uh, I mean, obviously it was shut down because... Uh, because his dad's in the White House and everything is under the microscope, but I was saddened to see that because he was doing exactly some good right. work. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, but that's that's an unusual situation. Usually, you don't have the microscopic review by uh, any governments or otherwise where where the where the money goes. But it is something to uh, you know that you'd be concerned with and look at. But of course, uh, you know that shouldn't stop people from from doing philanthropic work. For sure, for sure. Okay, well, thank you, thank you for that, George. I'm uh, I'm pleased that you mentioned that website. What, what was the name of that website again? Uh, they, it's called the Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator. Charitable Navigator, something like that. Yeah. Okay, well, I didn't know about effectively that. Effectively, what it? Yeah, that's for people looking to make donations. Uh, at that, my recollection of it, you can look at it, and there's probably a, more than one that does it, and they'll tell you basically how good the uh, the use of the funds are. So if you're making a contribution, at least it's nice to know where your where your money's going. Yeah, that's great. The next question comes from from Sia. Sia, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I am. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Sia. Hi, George. We've been growing our residential home improvement business. We went from six hundred fifty thousand to about one point two million over twenty fifteen to twenty sixteen, and I think we're going to break two million this year. I want to say thank you to Victor for all his uh, mentorship to the ups and downs. Uh, We've been focusing on hiring salespeople. So our lead generation is going really, really well. Our brand is strong. What I'm dealing with right now is I've, uh, I'm hiring salespeople. So right now we have one uh, sales guy. He's getting all the leads, which I'm happy to provide him. Um, but sometimes I find in business there's different personality types and salespeople are a whole different breed. Mm-hmm. Um, you get into a position where they negotiate with you uh, on many different fronts. They might want to drop prices while keeping commission rates the same. 
enabling to uh, enabling them to sell more. They want might want to keep all the leads themselves and not bring bring on a second salesperson, even though the business needs it. I guess my question is, how do you go about managing salespeople? Wow, that's a that is some question. You're absolutely right. You know, having been in the brokerage business, connected with the brokerage business, that is cutthroat. Uh, the anybody that gets a lead wants to keep it for themselves because that's a potential uh, source of income. And they'll also, if somebody else gets a lead and they find out about it, they'll steal it to uh, to, to do it themselves because they get paid not on what they do; they get paid on what they deliver. So it's 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 a diff, definitely is a uh, a cutthroat business. Cutting commissions is not just, not the best way to go, and it usually there's a marketplace in in the particular sales area, and you have to live with the marketplace. So if it's marketplace is four percent, three percent, five percent, or whatever it is, that's really where you ought to be. If you say I'm going to work at two percent, you don't get more deals as a result of that. You're just a function of making the deal happen, and your fee is not usually the the critical part. Of, uh, of any any transaction, it's just blended in there. However, the uh, good good salesperson knows how to get the the parties to make a deal. So you have to figure out where there's there's room between the buyer and the seller, and you have to try to convince the buyer that it's a really good deal and they're getting the best price, and you also have to convince the seller that the seller is getting the highest price. Now they have. That's a difficult call because they don't look at it that way. But if you know the market inside and out, and you 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 can can show comparables that are involved in the, both the, the the buying and the selling, and uh, generally you got a long ways to make a deal. So it's the data information that you have and use to your best advantage that makes salespeople very confident. They, I mean, that's how they can really make deals. So if George, you don't have the information; it doesn't work. So, George, let's look at a scenario. Let's imagine for a moment that you've got a 50% margin business, and um, let's say you were going to pay a five. You might have paid a 5% commission on the gross. I'd almost rather see the the salesman make 10% on the gross profit margin, which mathematically should work out to the same number. But when when you start to do a sensitivity analysis and 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 you start to cut prices. Then the goals of the salesperson and the goals of the business are better aligned. What do you, what do you think? Well, that, that that's true. But the uh, basic uh, the, the companies that I was involved with in, in New York had a different philosophy. They had the overhead that would get the the, the the deals in, and they whoever basically made the deal would get fifty percent of the commission, and the rest of it went to the house. In other words, for the for giving them the the uh, umbrella of the the corporate the umbrella of the corporate sponsorship, so that basically uh, you know would work. However, the the fee was basically uh, fixed whatever it would would the marketplace. The marketplace is five percent. That's what they got five percent, and the the salesperson who who closed the deal got half of the five percent. I see. And and the the rest of it went to what overhead for the umbrella of the developing the leads, where people that want to sell will go to a major company who has a good good record of uh, of, of doing making the sales or making the purchases and, and working it out. So they got the reputation. If they got the reputation, they basically would would get the the customers and then give it to a salesperson to service the customer. 
That's an interesting idea. That's an interesting idea. Sia, can you possibly adapt that to your business? That we got to do a comprehensive market study. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but that's see, and what happens is along those ways, you're not in competition with your salesperson. Because now they say, fine, we know at this point that you get us the leads, we close. Whatever we get and we close, you, we get half of, and you get the, and the, and the company gets the other half. How they decide, how they diversify it, and what they do with the other half is the advertising or building the reputation of the overall. So you got all of this with Coldwell Banker, and you got uh, uh, the uh, uh, all of the others, the uh, Remax and so forth, basically operate on the same same principle. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, next question is from Russ. You might remember Russ. He uh, was in the car with you back to your house back in in September. Russ, yeah, I remember Russ. Are you on the line? Hi, George. How are Hi, you? Hi, Russ. How are you? Good. I'm very excited to uh, talk with you and really appreciate these calls. I learn a lot every time I get a chance to listen in. That's the purpose um, of the call. Yeah, no, it's you're you're such a giver. I love it. So the the question I have, um, because I've read uh, Donald Trump's book, both books, well, many of his books, but The Art of the Deal, you know, Flying High, and then uh, the story of the crash and the recovery and uh, Art of the Comeback. And you know, we kind of went, I got I got to give you this sidelight. If you look at The Art of the Deal, I'm in it. I'm in it in a lot of pages, a lot of deals. <laughs> Somebody asked me, what do you think? I said, I wish the deals happened the way he wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because you had a front row seat and um, I, I, my partner and I experienced uh, a similar um, destruction in 2008. We were over leveraged and very dependent on the credit markets, most of it being fed through um, our mortgage company. And then when the mortgage markets went away, our cash flow went with it and yeah. all our credit lines went away. And that's what we were using for operating capital. So lesson learned. But in, in the comeback, um, we're, we're making this transition from being a small operation to a bigger operation. So the good news is we stayed there. Uh, the bad news uh, is that, uh, you know, part of what contributed to our problem the first time was our um, we weren't very experienced as managers, and I would say I'm probably still not super experienced. So the question is this, um, you know, when you when you see it, whether in a law firm or in a development company, two places, I know you've had a lot of experience, especially with a guy like Donald Trump, who, at least from the public perception, seems to be a guy that's very detail oriented and demands high quality. How do you how do you go from a, a kind of a small organization where you can see everything and feel everything and get direct feedback and have good visibility to a bigger company with a lot of stuff going on and not lose control of the quality and not lose control of the the money and the culture? Is, is there anything you learned watching all that that can help? Oh, yeah, there's that? a lot. There's a lot that you you. You uh, covered a covered a wide range of, of topics in just this, uh, this this small bit. That, but and understand the first thing is any big enterprise is not a democracy; it's a dictatorship. Uh, it should be a dictatorship. You can't let the inmates run the asylum. So, who's ever in charge, they have to be in charge, and what the decision that they make 
is what stands, and you have to get everybody in the organization to accept that. Now, that's the first step in a good organization. The second step is is very important, and what made Donald Trump so much success is the ability to delegate authority. So he could delegate, he could get people that he trusts, put him in positions, and let them run with the ball, and he doesn't micromanage. And you or any good executive does not micromanage. You handle the big items, and you give people direction, but you don't do the the, the, the nitty-gritty at this point and get in every decision. So people have the the right to make a decision, and that decision then they will, will follow. They don't have to go to the, the, the senior boss and uh, for everything to say approve this or approve this because if you do that they'll never make a decision because somebody else they, they can go back to the boss and that's the decision maker so you have to know what the the head executive wants now how do you get the people the way you get the people is basically you build a good you need got good support people and figure out how you're going to compensate them maybe you're going to give a piece of the action maybe you're going to give them bonuses so if they do certain things and that's a that's a good topic. One of the things that one of the things that has happened, which works very well, uh, or I've seen a number of companies well. that have done it, especially banks, is that each department has a budget. It has expenses. It has per, or certain personnel. The overhead expenses are, and if they make if they they stay within their budget, and make a profit, they get a piece of the profit. If they go over the budget, they got a problem at that point. They don't have a little bit of profit in this year. So the chances are, if that there's, there's a, a desire and a willingness to exceed because they're not governed by whether the whole organization is successful, but only is their department successful. So that, that, uh, compartmentalization is what has worked in many instances, something, something to be considered. But, uh, you know, you can give people a piece of the action. You can, you gotta have, uh, good people. You have to, they have to want to have the organization succeed. Everybody likes to be part of a good organization or one that's got a good reputation. Nobody wants to be part of a failure or one that doesn't. Got it. If you got it, Very that's good. easy. That's a big, hand, it's a yeah. big handful. Well, it's, you know, the challenge is when you, you know, when you really care about the, the, the quality, it, it, you know, I find I struggle with letting go. So, you know, I, you nailed me yeah, on Yeah, but a you have to tell things. you, tell them what you want and hold them to it, but not in the details right. at that point. You hold it to them in concept. Yeah. Okay. Once you try to hold the details, then you find out they're not going to make a decision because they're not going to be, they're not in trouble if it's bad decision and they're not, they really compensate if it's a good decision because it's not theirs. So you have to give them a level of authority, but that requires the ability to delegate. And over a period right. of time, it works out. But you may have some some bad apples, and you have some real. You'll you'll find out who's who's successful in your organization, and those that are just the laggards. And the budget holds them accountable. So basically, Correct. you give them the freedom to run a company within a company, so to speak, within the broader vision. Exactly. Very helpful. Right. Exactly. Thank right. you so much. Very You're good. Welcome. Well, George, the next question, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, Stefan Arnio has a question also related to uh, to hiring and talent, so I'll turn it over to Stefan because it kind of ties together. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Victor. 
Hi, George. Uh, Stefan here. I had a question for you about the best practices for attracting, screening, and uh, retaining top talent on a team. And I guess, how have other great entrepreneurs done it in the past? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. You, you have to create, create a spirit de corps. Uh, spirit mm-hmm. de corps basically is in the organization, does it make money? Or does it do what it's supposed to do? Does it have, it has built a reputation? And you, you, the, uh, Chief executive basically has to outline, says, here's what we want to do. Here's mm-hmm. what I'm telling you to do. And having set that out, then make sure that the, the people that are under him, uh, will adhere to that code of conduct and, and the code of procedure. And th- that, if they, if they do that, that's fine. And uh, basically, if they do it, and this, then they want to be part of the organization, they say, good, how do you keep them? So, mm-hmm. do you give them bonuses? Do you give them a piece of the action? Uh, we had, when I had the radio, uh, enterprise, I had a lot of radio stations. What I did was, and each, each radio station was basically independent because it was all in different jurisdictions and they ran themselves. So if they, they produced something at that point, I, they got, uh, stock in the, in the parent company and they never paid for it. Mm. So that was a major inducement. Now later on when the, when the, when the, the, the uh, empire got sold, they made they got a lot of money because of the stock interest, and they never paid for it. But they got it based on their performance in their particular area or their particular segment, not necessarily tied to whether the overall uh, entity made money. Hmm. And found out that 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 worked very well. But I don't know if it fits in what you have in mind. But it did for it did for the uh, broadcasting business. Okay, so do you think it's a good idea to give out equity? I, I've heard that it's good to yeah. keep as much yeah. equity so as possible. Out, let them earn equity. Earn it, not give it out. Earn it. Mm-hmm. In other words, assuming you get this something, you, you get the equity. You'll get a certain back at that point. So that you give them some type of a, 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 a carrot or the benefit so that they would, would, would perform. So you know if they perform, they get something over and above. But don't do it every month. Don't do it every two months. You'll do it like once a year. Okay. Because otherwise, otherwise, if you, if you do it on a short-term basis and they don't perform, you may lose it and they say, hey, I'm never going to see it. Whereas mm. you say, good, if you do this for a year, at the end of a year, we'll talk and we'll, we'll adjust at that time. And that gives you a chance to work it out. Mm. I like that. Thank you, George. You're welcome. Okay, George, then the next question involves someone that you and I both had lunch with. You might remember uh, Tom and his wife, McKenna. We had lunch in the basement yep. there of the Trump Tower at the Trump Grill. Trump Grill, yeah. Um, Tom passed away last week. and um, oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah it came as, as quite a shock, actually, to, to all. Does, yeah. Yeah, he was in he was in his mid seventies, but uh, but definitely very vibrant. Well, that's young. Yeah, it is. Mid seventies is young. <laughs> yeah, especially if, you know he talked to me. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So the, I guess the question is, um, you know, I've really never given thought to succession planning in our legal agreements. Um, as it stands, his wife is going to assume ownership for his share. And his, Tom's son is certainly a savvy business owner with a good business sense. And so in the end, I think it's going to work out fine. But when you're putting together a deal, what kind of specific terms would you recommend that I include for the unexpected, whether it's death, divorce, critical illness, what have you? 
Well, it's a, it's a it's a very good question, and it's uh, one that I think can give you a, a, a very very good answer, and a, a situation which very often is overlooked, and that's where two part two people can get together and they form a great partnership. But if one of them is is ailing or sick or dies, and their their uh, heirs come and take it over and know nothing about the business, but have it have a, really have a say. That could create havoc. So the, the 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 solution is in the original agreement, which sets up the business, and you have basically a divorce proceeding. With a divorce proceeding, uh, I say that in the event that the parties don't get along for one reason or another, or death, or uh, certainly uh, uh, an event which is to be taken into account, that the party who's remaining is not stuck with some other entity that he didn't know who doesn't have the experience and has an opportunity to buy him out. Or at that point, say, good, sell the share, and the up, but I would get the right to buy it. Or at that point, I'm, I'm going to buy it. Or at this point, you stay in, you have a share, but you're not a, a, a participant. You, you have ownership, but you don't have a vote. So you can't tell me what to do because you're not, you don't have the, qual- the qualifications of the, the person who's, who's no longer here. So this, that's very, very important, but the time to do it is at the beginning when you set it up. When you try to do it later on, when the event happens, all kinds of bad things can occur. Of course. So this would be the time to implement, you know, the classic shotgun buyout clause type scenario, that sort of thing? A shotgun buyout. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily go with the shotgun buyout. I think that's a little on the harsh side. Okay. Because at the time, at the time you, 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 you want to exercise it, it doesn't, it, it's a bad time. However, at that I'm saying that in the event of death of, or disability, the party who is remaining and running the business should have the control and, and the, op- the opportunity to, uh, to do with, without, without getting uh, input from somebody who wasn't there originally and also doesn't have the same desires or motivation. Usually they're in and say, good, I'm looking for money, let me buy me out. And uh, you can, it, it, a good agreement, you can, you can provide for it. The time to do it is when you set it up, because at that time there's nothing on the table. You try right. to do it later on when the event, when the event occurs. It's oh, it's chaotic. Right, right. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so I, I guess the next question is kind of related. Uh, this is a follow-up to a question we talked about last month, and I have a project for a workforce housing um, uh, near some mega projects in Southwest Louisiana, and. Uh, there's really two questions here. The first is, you know, we put together all of our performers, we put together a very conservative construction budget, and even giving fairly modest equity, it's showing annualized investor returns of 23% annualized over the life of the project. It's a very realistic scenario. Uh, the biggest contributor to that is the fact that the, you know, the investor gets their money back quickly, so uh, any returns they get after that really help the rate of return calculation. The question is, are we offering too much? Okay. Yes. Yes. Why? Why the? the, the I can understand an investor getting a, a return mm-hmm. or a put some type of a priority return before you see anything, but not taking all of the money that they should get their money back very quickly. And the party who put the deal together at that point has to wait in line. Correct. Uh, depending upon the success. No, when you're talking 23%, how much, I don't know how much 
you say makes 23 percent. How much do you pay the investor? So we're giving a six we're, we're giving a six percent pref return while their cash is tied up, and then we're doing okay. a a, um, a preferred distribution on a 70-30 basis of the net income to accelerate the, re the repayment of the investment. And then once the... 70-70%, 30% for you? Correct. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. And that's to... Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's too slanted. Well, that's to pay it down quickly. I know that, but okay. this, we'll, we'll pay it down quickly. 50-50, it sits nicely. And uh, when I say fits nicely... That it it has a certain rhythm to it. You okay. say, hey, you get half and I get half. Meanwhile, they got the priority up front, so they get a certain guaranteed return of X dollars. You're saying six percent, which you don't have, right? Right. And then the rest of it basically gets gets shared. But I think giving them seventy or thirty to pay them off earlier is being overly generous. Okay. Okay. Okay, so that, that that answers that question. I guess the related question then and is also at that point. Also at that point, you can go different. There are lots of ways to work it out. You're saying six percent at this point. Maybe you say, oh, "Fine, on the next the next profits at that point, we'll give you another eight percent or whatever it is. We'll give you so you get in increments depending upon more money which is being made, so they can see the money sooner, but not as fast as you're you're, you're laying it out. That that that. Or takes away a major incentive once you know you see, oh yeah, all your investors got all their money and you didn't. Okay. Oh, that's my thought. Okay. So then related to that, uh, if we have a single investor that is, let's say, bringing uh, the lion's share of the funds, one of the risks, yeah. one of the concerns sometimes is that they feel like they merit too loud a voice at the table. Uh, would you take a single investor on a project like this or... or um, would you want to see it split up amongst three or four investors so, so not one person feels like they, they have too loud a voice? Uh, that, I, I, I would like to see it split up at this. And uh, uh, basically, uh, when, when the time comes, your larger major investor says, hey, I want to have the, 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 uh, the control of the project or the larger share, and say, wait a minute, these are people, my investors are people that I've dealt, dealt with a long period of time, and I won't cut them out. So they've they've earned the right to participate in in my transactions, and therefore I will not uh, give somebody the, the the total total control or basically the lion's share. I I split it up, I split it up the way I think it ought to be split up. They can live with that. I wouldn't give any one person too much control. Okay, makes sense. Because the the, the, the what happens is. They will control. They'll tell you what to do, and they're such a big investor at that point that you you have to listen to them. It's like in my law firm. Uh, when I have, I never wanted a client, any client that had to be twenty twenty percent of our our gross income because it had too big control. Once, once at that point, if they say I'm going to take away the business and you're going to lose twenty percent, and you've got all the all the partners, all the the lawyers and what have you, that's a problem. So you have to make sure that they're not they're they're not they don't control the firm. That right. if you lost that client, you could still survive. That's like the product supplier. Same way at this point. That's like the product supplier. Sorry, go ahead. It's the same way with your with your investors. Yeah. If you lost that investor, could you still survive? The answer is yes. You're doing right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like the product supplier that sells to Walmart. Uh, they'll take lots of business, but oh my gosh, they have leverage. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, uh, okay, case in point, I had a, a friend at that point who made jeans. 
and he sold the jeans to, to Kmart. And very successful, they bought bought his entire output. And then one day they said, "We we'll want to buy your factory." And he says, "Well, it's not for sale." They said, "Good, then we won't we won't buy any of your jeans." Right. And they were his old customer. <laughs> he had no choice. He had to sell it to him. Of course. They got a gun to his head. Did he? The guy was out of business unless he sold. Not the not where you want to be. Right. Okay. Very good. Um, the next series of questions come from Jackie. Jackie, are you on the line? You may need to unmute. Press star six to unmute. Yes. Hi, George. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Hi. I'm good, thank you. Good. I have a few questions, George, and the first one is a bit long because I'm trying to put it in context first. So let me try. What I have okay. is that we have the old adage that you buy low and you sell high, right? And that yeah, applies to uh, all types yeah, of investment. Yep. Yeah. To make that even more effective, we're advised to take a contrarian view where you buy when everyone is selling and you sell when everyone is buying. So it's as if you're timing the market to some extent when you do that. I've also heard other people say, you know, that the U.S. market is overinflated now, is overvalued, and a price correction is expected soon. I've also heard people say, you know what, deals are not bought, they're created. So you can get good deals in any type of market, no matter if the general consensus is that the market is overvalued. My question is, how do you reconcile these two viewpoints? Should one adopt a balance? Uh, yeah, you don't, you don't reconcile the two viewpoints. First of all, you're talking generalities. It doesn't happen when you say buy, uh, uh, you know, uh, sell high, buy low. Yeah, that's, that's fine in theory. But in actuality, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily work that way. You never know the high or the low. So they okay. think this is a deal. And also understand that when you're talking basically in, in real estate or markets, stay away from the idea of what people tell you the market is or what is. Markets, every city varies. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have a city which is having trouble, but to certain areas which are hot. You can have a city which is hot and certain areas are, are bad. The, the question is, what do you want to do at that particular point in time? Are you buying something long range? Are you buying it short range? So... You know, you've heard people say location, 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 and that turns out very well for some things. It depends on the nature of the investment and what you're looking to get from that investment. And if you've done your homework or you've spotted trends uh, that that are real trends, not what the uh, uh, people in the newspapers or anything, trend. that's not a trend. That's their mm-hmm. feeling. So that they now say, I mean, I, I've seen seen one, and I'm sure you've seen it, where the the median house in California at that point is $807,000. What is the mm-hmm. median house? Yeah. Where did that come from? What is it? What's involved? That's just their feeling. That's mm-hmm. just, you don't back it up. Now, you may see a house that's with, if you got a house for 600000 that you think is a good buy, not necessarily so, or you have one that's a million and a half you think is a terrible buy. No, you have to go to the particular area and, and get the data. Spot the trends, what's going on in that area. And usually, the best circumstance, the best uh, person to look to or group to look to is the brokers, the people who are selling and buying in that area. And they can tell, they basically tell you, yeah, that, that last, last week I sold a house for 700000 and if I had it this week, I could get 800000 right, mm-hmm. That's good. If they know the trends, that's a trend which is going up. On the other hand, you can see a trend which is which is going down. 
the idea is to know what the trend is and also yeah. to live, to have enough money and enough time so that you can outlive the trend. Real estate will always go in cycles. Okay. It will go up and it will go down. If you can outlive the cycle, you will be good. Ultimately, will be good. But you have to do it on a, on a selective basis. You can't do it on a general basis. So, George, a good example, a good example of that might be, for example, uh, student housing next to a growing campus. It's countercyclical to the economy. If the economy tanks, people still go to university. Correct. Correct. It's those hyper local. The market is the market is the market is segregated. It's not. You can't talk about it generally. So you're absolutely right in when you in in the the example which you just uh, just gave, Victor. In other words. If you have a university and you have students that are going to university or dorms that are involved, and that traditionally, that university has expanded and it's got good endowments, it'll continue on. It's going to be good because the school is going to be larger, not smaller. And if you see it as larger, you say, well, there's going to be more of a demand for housing in that area. So if I started to buy up properties and create student housing, it will work good. And I'm because I am betting that the university will succeed based on the fact that it has improved over a period of years. So if you looked at it and say, I say, good, how is their student body? How many students do they have? What's the tuition? How, what's the endowment? And what's involved? It, it could be huge. So if there are, there are, there are colleges, you know, which have the uh, money involved where they have billions in, in, in endowments and which, which people have been have given them. Well, they got if you just if a, if a, a, a college has a, has a four billion dollars in their bank, you can be be sure they're going to spend it and do something, and they're going to continue in business. So if they're expanding or look like they're expanding, that, that, that's a, you know that's a, an area which which uh, might prove very profitable. Very good, Jackie. You had another question. Yes, the second one. Even though there is strong indication of demand for a particular product in the market. Ascertain through conversations with local realtors, for example. For instance, senior housing or apartment complexes for millennials in certain areas. Does it make sense to formally get demand through feasibility studies, especially if you're undertaking a large-scale project? Uh, oh, great question. No, it's yes. a great question. That, uh, feasibility studies are, are great, mm-hmm. depending who makes the feasibility study? How can you trust them? How detailed are they? Do they really have the data? Mm-hmm. You know, are they are they working on actual data or uh, which is which is hard data? Or are they they doing the same thing that you're doing? Put a finger in the wind and say, I think it's going to happen. Okay. So, where you have companies that have the the studies and you use them for feasibility, yes, it does work. Mm-hmm. And at almost all the successful. Uh, Developers or builders do do feasibility studies and say what's happened over the period of time. How uh, what's what what's happened in the labor market? Uh, was uh, do we have more jobs? Do we have more manufacturing? What's happened in the educational market? And the, they they can develop trends. Now with the uh, advent of computers, which we all have, a good company has these studies and can show them to you if you tell them what you want. Mm-hmm. And they will come out very well. This was uh, a good development at that point. Was that it came in that I, again? I go back to the broadcasting business, and, and this, that we there were companies that would tell you who was in a particular area. 
So if you had a product that you wanted to sell and you say, I want to sell it to men that are uh, between the ages of 35 and 50 that have that make at least $70,000, they wouldn't tell you where to put, place your ad and when to place it because they had all the information as to how this was and what the, the buying habits were of people in that category. So the feasibility study was something you would rely upon, and it generally worked. Okay. So they do work depending on who does it. It's a great idea, and and any large company does it, it does feasibility studies. Thank you for that, George. My last question. Would you advise a newcomer to real estate investing to go directly into developing apartment complexes if he has a capable mentor with a similar projects who can guide him along in the process? Or should the individual start small with single-family homes or small multifamily structures? No, that's easy. That's an easy question to answer at that point. I would go with the mentor. Okay. If you've got somebody that knows what they're doing and been fairly successful, then let them teach you what it is. You go in on the apprentice basis. That's the way to learn. Don't you do it yourself? You learn. You, you learn the hard way because you don't know what to look out for. So okay. yes, by all means, uh, get involved with someone who knows what they're doing. See how they're successful, and then later on you can adapt it or emulate it yourselves. So you see what makes their success. So what they do, how much, what what they what they look at, uh, to do to go from that non-mentored. To a mentor situation, no. If effectively, mentor or coach. If you have a coach mm-hmm. that, that can show you what you, that you can see what to do or how to do it and how to do it better, that's the way that that's the way to grow and learn. And you can go from small to large. Say, how did they get get to that be that size? So you could learn from somebody who was basically very successful and went from small to large. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, George. You're welcome, George. The next question. Uh, kind of relates to the economy a little bit to the banking industry and perhaps even my own personal balance sheet. And, and this is something that I know that, uh, Russell Gray and I have talked about considerably. And th- this is the idea that, of course, your balance sheet consists of both assets and liabilities. And when I lend money, that appears on my balance sheet as an asset. And when I borrow money, it's a liability. But sometimes, you can get these long chains of assets and liabilities that if one person at one end of the chain defaults, you have this domino effect um, where everybody's balance sheet looks good until one tips over at the end of the chain and then they all come crashing down. How do you mm-hmm. how do you assess the risk of all these contingent liabilities that appear as quote unquote assets? And it's not an abstract question, it's one that I'm actively trying to figure out. Well, it's a very good question. Uh, the the answer is is effectively is each of the assets that you have should be separated with a separate entity and separate liabilities, so that if you if that asset should fail, it doesn't affect the whole operation. So you've divorced it <coughs> from the 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 uh, basic organization, so that you, you don't have to work. So you work through subsidiaries, you work through uh, other entities, and you, you you make sure that your your assets your assets and liabilities are matched. You don't cross collateralize, so that you don't have one asset at that point which is is security for five deals, one asset for one deal, and if it goes bad, goes bad. And learn how to diversify. Mm-hmm. So if you diversified uh, and you have different types of assets. And one of the uh, market, one of the market areas goes goes bad. It doesn't uh, basically collapse the whole uh, the whole enterprise. 
go with just as that one goes bad, but if you got to score them, all you need is more wins than losses, and you'll be very successful. But keep them separate so that you can't – one one bad deal can't sink the ship. Well, and, and certainly, uh, you know, if I look at my own portfolio, uh, we've certainly firewalled assets from each other, which helps – for the scenario that you described, but it's also a hindrance in another respect. For example, I, ha- I own four buildings on the same block in in, in Chicago, and uh, they're each in separate entities. Now, if I have a vacancy on, I'd like to really manage it as one building because they're all on the same no, block. You can do that. That doesn't mean you could do that. That management doesn't does the fact that you have four different entities. Mm. You can have an overall manager for the four entities. But the four, the entities are separate. That doesn't mean that they have all separate personnel. Right. The overall, uh, uh, this uh, is a, I, uh, so I do have, a, uh, yeah, I have overarching management, but if I have a cash shortfall on one building, I can't move money from one to cover the other. That's <laughs> the issue. <laughs> yeah, that's but, fine. That's but, good, but that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. That is, you take the cash out, take the cash out and do what you want with it at this point. So, but it doesn't, it, 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 to cross collateralize them is, is, creates a problem. Right. But it, it, it works good when it's working, when everything is fine and rosy. Yeah, it's a great idea. However, on the other hand, if it goes south, you've got a big problem because instead of losing one property, you could lose four or five or how many are tied in the same chain. So uh, the diversification is important, but you can certainly uh, uh, cross manage. You can cross collateralize, cr- not cross collateralize. You can, you can manage. You can also, at that point, siphon off profits from one 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 property to another on a certain basis. So, you can you can it can be done. It's a little it's it maybe a little bit more intricate, but it certainly is worthwhile in the end. Otherwise, at this point, you, you a, a a downturn in one particular area, one particular group of properties could be catastrophic for your whole operation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The next question is kind of related, and I think everyone on this call can relate to this. You know, the game of, of real estate investing can be a risky one where, you know, if you get cash crunch, even a single asset sale can improve the liquidity and, and solve a cash crunch. And I've even experienced it myself. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Donald has done the same thing. And I'm seeing now some of my partners who are experiencing low liqu- liquidity looking to solve it through an asset sale or a refinance. Question is, if they're partners of mine, how do I figure out whether they're, or even for myself, how do I figure out if I'm acting prudently or raising the risk profile um, by by raising cash through an asset sale? <laughs> you go back. We'll go back to a prior question, sure. prior situation, which came up, and I, I gave a, a, my feeling on it, that this is you're not a democracy, you're a dictatorship. Right. Somebody's got to be in charge and makes the decision. And if the others don't like the decision, that's tough, but you have the right to make the decision. Once you open it up that everybody has a right to say a voice, they'll come with, with different ideas. Some thinks the market's going up, some thinks the market's going down, some says don't sell that asset, sell the other assets. The, the, uh, the, the various voices that you're going to hear, you can't possibly uh, do the right thing. So you have to ultimately make a decision, say, here's what I've decided to do, and do it. And if the others add that, that's the end of it. There's no discussion because you set it up as no discussion. You say, I'll hear what you have to say, but I'll make the decision, and that's it. If I decide what asset gets sold, it gets sold. And if they have faith in your ability and to make a decision and to act properly, that over the period of time you look like you, you know what you're doing and they've seen the asset, they'll live with it. They may not like it. 
but they will live with it. And the important thing is live with it because they come from a different background. They have different ideas. Right. They think that they think that this market is going to get hot. That I'd rather see it in residential than in commercial, or I'd rather see it in commercial than residential. And uh, uh, when you listen to them, that you go you go go crazy. You can't you can't make the decision that way. Only one person should make should have the right to make the decision and sell the assets to the liquidity of the company. And that's the end of it. Decide this is what's going to be done, and it gets done. Right. Right. Well, that's challenging uh, if if the partnership structure is more like a 50-50. But um, but uh, what what would you do in that scenario? Well, the partnership is more like a 50-50. Hey, what happens if if you have a stalemate? Right. What happens if the, what happens if the partners go in different directions? Again, this is a, this is a perfect situation. What's your divorce proceeding? So they say, hey, look, here's what I say to do. Right? If you don't want to do it. I'll buy you out, and if you don't want to, or you buy me out, and that's the way we solve it. But you have to have the right to 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 buy it out. You can't live with a situation with a deadlock. Then nothing gets done, and creates a, a havoc in the partnership. There has to be some way to solve to solve a deadlock. One of the ways to do it at this point is there is there a third party that you can get to make a decision, and uh, it ultimately acts as an umpire or an arbitrator. I've seen that work in a certain in, in, in instance. We say hey, we can't agree at this point. Let's let's give it to George and whatever he says, we're bound by. Right, right. So if they have a third party, which they which they mutually expect, mutually respect, it could work out. I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily the best solution, but it certainly is a solution. There has to be a way to break the deadlock, and you break the deadlock by by finding out giving it to somebody and let them make the decision or in the alternative you buy me out or I'll buy you out and in some way of coming up with an intelligent price certain times times earnings or what have there's some way of, of uh, coming out and then ultimately paying it you don't have to pay it all cash you pay some paper some cash whatever it is but enough so that the the the, the entity can continue or the person who buys who wins the who gets it at the end can basically survive right right and and one of the issues that comes up very often in this situation is that the two parties are not equal. One has a pot full of money, and the other one is struggling. Correct. At that point, this so so now the one that has a pot full of the money can force the situation. So you don't want to force the situation because the one that doesn't have the same same money is is put at a disadvantage. You have to over, overcome that. And you can provide for it in your papers or your divorce proceeding or your partnership agreement as to what happens in the event that it, that, that occurs. So that one party can't get squeezed because he happens to be less fortunate monetarily than, than, the, than the other party who's done all the work. It's, it's, it's difficult, but not impossible. But the time to do it is at the very beginning. Yes. Said, so what would you do if I were in the following situation? What would you do if you had a pot full of money and the other side party didn't decide to sell, or if they had a pot full of money and were forcing you? So you have to look at it, say which 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 side I would be on. But if either side, it, it could work. And the time to do it is the beginning because there's nothing on the table and everybody is, can come up with something legitimate. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, and we're going through that right now on a bunch of new projects. So the uh, this is a very timely discussion. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Well, George, uh, we're going to close the call with a segment which we call Behind the Apprentice Boardroom. 
And this is where we dig into something that happened on the show and try and tease out some of the lessons that were hidden. And one of the characteristics of the show it was the concept of confrontation. And we certainly saw lots of it. And probably the cameras or the editors of the show uh, pulled out more of it than happened in real life. But, uh, you know, confrontation can be destructive, but it can also serve a useful purpose to get to the heart of an issue quickly. Can you talk about how you've used confrontation effectively, or maybe there's an example from the show, for the benefit of the business and for the people involved? Well, okay, I can do it, but I I wouldn't do come up with a with a, a confrontation which had to do with the show because right. the show is it was yeah, basically it was entertainment, it yeah, was yeah. show business. In other words, and it was the the confrontation the, the 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 confrontations were basically to get to the next episode, to not to get fired. That was the the con- confrontation. So to me, that's not a true uh, confrontation because the, the what you're trying to do is is not what you might do in real life. Sure. Because there's this but one situation did come up when when mine and and uh, was was turned out to be fairly costly not costly but the uh, it was an idea is that I was buying a piece of property uh, to build a, a a large apartment house on in, in Chinatown in New York and the there was a store in the ground floor and the store was was run by or owned by a, a close friend so I said well, if I buy that property. Uh, at this, would you give up the store? Just sure. No, you know, I'd be happy to give up the store. And I made a mistake, and I trusted the friend. Now I did protect myself because at this point I only took an option. I didn't buy the property. But then when the option, now I went. I said, oh, okay, I took an. I I, own, I have an option on the property. I'm going to buy it. I want to you, you to get out. He said, sure. Just give me five million dollars. Right. Right. All right. Now that this is so. Uh, what happened is lost a friendship, but the deal also tanked because I trusted someone that was a friend. The, the, the confrontation came out, don't deal with friends. If you don't get it in writing and you don't get it down, it doesn't work. Don't deal with friends or relatives. Deal with independent people. And that, I never built a building. Now, whether it was going to be successful or not, not it wasn't overly costly. That just because I had an option, so at this point, it was lost my option money. But if I bought the, bought the property, at this point, I would have had a serious problem. Well, sure. Sure. What about the situation? Well, okay, so in that situation, uh, should you have confronted him earlier on in the process uh, before you even got to the point of putting it on paper? Well, I, I did what I said, yeah. confront him. He was a friend at that yeah. point. He says, yeah, I'll get out. Now, I assume at that point when he gets out, at this point, whatever his damages are going to be uh, at this point, they, yeah, I was ready to pay a reasonable amount of damages. Right. The only thing is, at this point, I had figured at this point he would get out from the store, so maybe I'll pay him a million dollars at this point, and the deal still worked. When he said five million, the deal didn't work at all. So right. at that point, it was hijacking because he felt that he was in better position now that I was committed to buy the property. He could he could raise the price, and that was a, a major problem at this point. We we had a misunderstanding on where the deal could be made. Right. So if the first time I said, get out, if he said, yeah, I should have said at that point, good. When you say get out, how much do you want to get out? Then we could start negotiating while he still didn't have the, the what you figured to be the upper hand because I was already committed. Right, right. Well, which is the advice you gave earlier in the call, which is to negotiate all this stuff in the abstract when at the beginning, not not when it's uh, not late in the process. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Right. Now, at that point, I, I could have, you understand... 
I I didn't do it with a friend, but what I could have done at that time was take an option to to buy to get him out of his store. Right. To yep. pay for that. Yep. To pin it down. Now I may have a number, so he said Is this was good. If I had the the option to get him out, maybe, and then we knew what the number was, then I could figure the number into the total transaction, and it could probably we could probably have made it work. But we were so far apart that it didn't work. Right. Right. Well, George, we're almost at the top of the hour here. Uh, as always, I think we're there. As always, uh, a great call. Thank you so much for the wisdom and your energy and engagement. Uh, this is terrific, and we look forward to talking next month. I believe we're scheduled for the 13th of April on a Thursday night. And uh, right. so, everyone, keep an eye out in your emails, and uh, we'll have and the all the people, all the people that are listening to this, but come up with questions. You got serious. You got problems at that point. This is a perfect opportunity when we have these calls to give uh, Victor give the questions that you have at that point, and we discuss it. And I think you'll be better off having the opinion whether it works or not is up to you. But at least you have the, the benefit of all my experience and what I would do or how I would think on a particular situation. And I think that's you would find very valuable. Thank you so much, George. Okay. Have a great night. See you next next month yes okay Okay. thanks bye for now good night okay good night everybody we'll post the recording and get that sent out uh, within the next day